up to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21 will be our text today. Thank you, Dick. Thank you, Miss Diane and Miss Wendy for sharing your gift and music with us. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23 and going through verse 46. Before we read the text, would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, as we open your holy word, we pray that you would lead, guide, and direct us by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would work within our hearts and minds to help us grasp the truth of your word, illuminate our minds, O God, that we might know the truth of your word, and set our hearts afire that we might love the truth of your word. Now, Lord, I pray not only that your anointing would be upon my lips, my mouth, but also upon our ears. We pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Dr. David said, this today marks the day of four, well, there are four Sundays before Resurrection Sunday, or four Sundays until Resurrection Sunday. And so this morning we'll take one last break from our sermon series through Genesis, and we'll return to uh, Genesis and complete Genesis uh, before the end of May. But over these next four weeks, I want us to look at the passion narrative as seen in Matthew's Gospel from chapter 21 through chapter 27. And these chapters cover the last week of Jesus' life. He has up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew to enter Jerusalem. And in chapter 21, he turns his face towards Jerusalem and he enters into Jerusalem to spend his last week there. Begins in chapter 21 with the triumphal entry and it ends in chapter 27 with his crucifixion. This was the week that all of creation had been waiting for. The events of this week were planned before the foundation of the world. And they weren't just climactic for Jesus' life. They were climactic for all of history. From Adam and Eve's sin and fall in the garden and their banishment from the garden to God's covenant with Abraham to Israel's elect status as God's chosen people throughout the history, throughout redemptive history, it's Israel that was to be imaging God to all the nations. And this last week of Jesus' life is about completing God's Redemptive mission. So he enters Jerusalem, and he made straight way for God's holy temple. There were some things that needed to be corrected in the temple, in the place of worship, in God's house. And so our passage this morning picks up the day after that particular temple scene where he goes into the temple and he turns everything over. There's a painting called, I think the name is pronounced, Giotto. Giotto's painting, and Giotto's the artist, and the painting is the expulsion of the money changers from the temple. And the painting offers us a depiction of Jesus cleansing the temple. And on the left, it shows the apostles, they're, they're shocked and confused. One's covering his face, the other's raising his hands, as if to say there must be a good explanation for this. On the right, you see the merchants, They're cowering. The animals are escaping. And then in the far background, 
are the temple authorities whispering to each other. And then at the center, you see Jesus. And behind him, there's the temple, right? If you look at the picture in front of him, there's an overturned table. And over his right shoulder, you can't tell it here, but in his right hand as it's clenched, you can see in this next picture that he's holding a whip. It's really light. But because of its light coloring, it's hard to notice. So it looks like he's about to punch one of the merchants, but he's not, right? He's holding this whip. So as you think about this picture, you can see the whip there, and you can see the passion of Jesus. I think the author, I mean the the artist, captures the scene well. On the next day, Jesus enters the temple again. And that's where we find ourselves in the text in Genesis, I mean in Matthew, I'm so used to saying Genesis, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. So I want to invite you to follow along as I begin reading. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him, and he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. If you tell me the answer, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they will hold... For they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then in verse 28, What do you think? He says, telling a parable. A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and said, to the, and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which one of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. It's a shocking statement. Verse 32, for, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Then he says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press. And in it built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took the servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent again other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these ten tenants? In verse 41, the religious leaders replied, they said to him, 
He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard, or lease the vineyard, to, another, to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. You know, if we, were, if we were to paint a picture of today's passage, it would likely have that same picture and portrait of Jesus at the center of the temple with his fist still clenched. But this time, he's, he would be paired against the temple authorities in their proper boxing stances. A theological boxing match begins in this passage. And this morning, we see a clash of authorities in the text. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, what I, what I want us to see, this is kind of the, the central idea of, of the sermon this morning. I, I want us to see that Christians demonstrate submission to God's authority through repentance and obedience. Christians demonstrate submission to God's authority through repentance and obedience, for that is the call of the passage as we look at it this morning. And so in the first scene we come to, title is by whose authority and in verses 23 through 27 we see this first scene unfolding as we read it a moment ago you know the police chase ended with the apprehension of a of the suspected perp once they brought him back to the precinct they placed him in the interrogation room and caught their breath they begin with a barrage of questions why did you run from us what were you doing on the street so late last night where were you headed who did you go to see Why were you hiding when you saw the flashing lights of the police cars? None of those questions, of course, really were the question they wanted to ask. What they really wanted to know from the guy was, did you commit the murder? But they couldn't just come out with that question right off the bat. They had to try to to wear the suspect down with a series of questions to trip him up and to try to catch him in a lie. If they came right out with the main question and the suspect was guilty, He certainly would deny it, and all of it would be a wash. This is the way, this way, the truth would come out sooner or later. The chief priests and the elders, they really wanted to ask a different question to Jesus. They really wanted to ask him, do you think you're the Messiah? They already had their minds made up, but if they could figure out a way to get Jesus to make this claim, they would have him right where they wanted him. Now, the events of the previous day when Jesus cleansed the temple, it was viewed and seen by the religious leaders as an act of provocation. So when Jesus showed up again and began teaching in the temple the next morning, they saw their golden opportunity to ask him an ensnaring question. And that ensnaring question was, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? On the one hand, the chief priests and the elders, they had every right to ask Jesus this question. Anyone who taught in the temple courts was subject to the scrutiny of the religious leaders. But Jesus' time had not yet come. And so he wouldn't be tripped up by their impure motives. So he responded, 
I'll tell you the answer to the question if you'll answer my question. The baptism of John, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from man? Now, his question really wasn't an evasive move. Instead, he was, Jesus was trying to draw attention to the right understanding of his identity, of his mission, and of his authority. Nevertheless, his question put them on the spot. And look at verses 25 and 26. It tells us of their dilemma at the end of 25. It says, They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Why then do you not believe? But if we say from man... We're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. You see, it was antithetical. It was either one or the other. It was either from heaven or from man. It could not be a little bit of both, and the religious leaders knew it. So the question about John is a clue to the answer that they seek. But the reality is, if they're not capable of judging the truth about John the Baptist correctly as being heaven sent, then they're not capable of judging the truth about Jesus correctly either. So Jesus' claims and actions are truly astounding. As Giotto's painting captures the astonishment so well, we as readers, we, we, know, we know the answer, but we're also left wondering as we read the story about Jesus' authority. What gives him the right to break traditions of Judaism? What gives him the right to speak so boldly against the religious establishment of the day, to come in and literally turn it upside down? What gives him this right? The answer is found in John the Baptist's message about Jesus. This is why Jesus refers back to John the Baptist. And so in order to do that, you've got to go all the way back to Matthew chapter 3 to see to see what John the Baptist was saying about Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, you can follow along on the screen. John the Baptist comes and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And then in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John is saying to the crowd, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, right? The picture of judgment. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And one more selection. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says this. And when Jesus was baptized, right, he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. Immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God, John the Baptist, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, Jesus. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. See, the reason that Jesus pointed back to John the Baptist is because this is where it all began. And the call to all that John has been proclaiming is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Repent from living under your own authority and embrace the Son. Jesus' authority comes from God. He is God in flesh. 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus. But you see, they're not ready for Jesus' answer to the question, by what authority, and who gave you this authority? One of the questions we have to consider as we approach this passage this morning in this Easter season is this. Am I ready for Jesus' answer to the question? Am I ready for Jesus' answer to the question? It seems that the fear of man and a lust for their own way drove the religious leaders in their actions. Does a similar perspective affect the way that we approach Jesus? Fear of man, pursuit of our own way above God's way. Is that the way that we approach Jesus? Wondering about what everybody else or worried about what everybody else might think or say of us? Sensing that God has called us to do one thing but rebelling against it because we want to do what we want to do and it's just hard. Repentance demonstrates true faith and we see this in the second scene. Verses 28 through 32. The main thrust of the parable of the two sons is to say what counts is not mere promise but the action of obedience. That's what counts. The question we face as we read this parable is how are we responding to Jesus? How am I responding to Jesus? In the parable, we have some characters, right? As we look through this first parable in verses 28 through 32, the characters are the father, and the father equals God. There's the first son, who is symbolized by or symbolizes tax collectors and prostitutes. And then there's the second son, which symbolizes Israel's leaders. Right? And then he says something really astounding and astonishing about the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the ones who, who were not supposed to have entrance into the kingdom of God. He says, to, he says of them, they have entrance into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Speaking to the religious leaders. See, the second son, Israel's leaders, they may be verbally zealous for obedience to God, but they fail to obey God's messengers. So we see that everyone who repents of their sin and confesses Christ as Lord will enter the kingdom of God. That is the point that Jesus is making with this parable. The shock value of those symbolized by the first son, by the first son, is astounding because they are the most rank pagan in terms of their world, right? The tax collector was a traitor. He sold out his Jewish heritage in order to collect taxes on behalf of the Romans, and he extorted money from his Jewish brothers and sisters. Hatred for that person. The prostitute, sexually immoral, thought to be so far away from the kingdom of God that they could never enter his kingdom. And yet Jesus says of them, they enter the kingdom of God before you. How could this be? The way it could be is that although they had rejected God's ways initially, right? They were living outside of God's covenant. They weren't living for God in pursuit of God. When they heard the call of John the Baptist, what was his call? Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? The Messiah has come, and when they heard this call, they repented, and they believed. They believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and that he had come. Jesus had been proclaiming the way to enter the kingdom of God was through believing in him, and they continued to believe. In passages like Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 and 25, what did Jesus tell his disciples? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. They didn't believe him. The religious leaders, that is. They didn't believe him. In verse 32, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not what? You did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it afterward, you didn't change your minds and believe him. They weren't willing to lose their life for the sake of surrendering to Jesus. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were. They believed him. You see, true belief is always evidenced through action. And action displays our true faith. After mulling over Jesus' statement, C.S. Lewis concluded this. He said, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they can't turn to God. Rather, it's the proud, the greedy, the self-righteous who are in that danger. I like what James says in James 2.18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works, right? And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. You know, in our Protestant zeal, we're quick to say, salvation is by faith alone. But I want to challenge us, never, never, let us never be or become so callous as to think, think that faith alone means Faith unaccompanied by transformed lives and transformed actions. Because faith cannot be separated from a right living. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the leaders of Israel were doing. And that's who Jesus is speaking against. So friend, Christian, let me ask you. Have you arrived at a place in your journey with Christ, in your faith walk? Where you feel this slipping. And it seems that your faith and your actions are in two separate places. We challenge you to heed the words of the parable, to heed the challenge of Jesus, to answer the question truthfully before the Lord, how am I responding to Jesus? The challenge for each of us as we think upon this parable is to ask ourselves that question. How am I responding to Jesus? Are we like the first son coming to God through Jesus with repentance and faith? Or do we identify more like the second son saying yes to God, but only offering lip service and going off to go our own way and do our own thing? God's patience, justice, and provision inform the third scene in verses 33 through 46 in this parable of the, the, the farmer and the tenants, Jesus goes on to tell another parable 
And in this parable, he recounts a succinct version of redemptive history. In verse 33, he highlights the work of the master of the house with seven verbs that are attributed to the master. Look at what he says there in verse 33. There was a master, or there came, there was an established, he he was there. There was a master of the house who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a wine press, and in it he built a tower for protection, right? He he leased it to tenants, come in and work the field. Come and, and make the produce flourish. Come and make the vineyard flourish. And he went into another country, and he left it in their care. God's initiative is seen in establishing his kingdom and providing all that was necessary for its flourishing. You know, the other night, I had a dream, and when I woke up in the morning, I found myself wanting to go back to sleep because I was having so much fun in my dream. That's the first time that has ever happened to me, all right? But it happened. And then on another night, I had a, I had a different dream, and, and this dream was so vivid, but it was so strange. And when I woke up the next morning, I told Tara, I wish I had someone like Joseph who could interpret my dream. It just happened to be on the week that I was preaching about Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream. You know, since I've forgotten the details of both of the dreams. But in a similar way, once upon a time, there was a king who had a dream. So he called all the wise men of the kingdom together to ask for an interpretation of the dream. Maybe it was like me, maybe he forgot the details of the dream, or maybe he was just testing them, whatever the case. He demanded an interpretation, but there was no one among his wise men who could tell him what the dream was, much less give him an interpretation. Then there was one young Jewish man who asked his friends to pray that he be able to know the dream, tell it, and speak of its interpretation. So they did. And he recounted the full dream and its interpretation to the king. This story is told in Daniel chapter 2. And in, in the dream, the king saw a huge statue. Its head was made of gold. Its chest and arms were made of silver. Its middle and thighs of bronze and its leg of iron. Its feet was a mixture of iron and clay. Then there came a stone which struck, the, which struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And the whole statue came crashing down and was broken into a, a, a million pieces. But the stone itself became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. The king's dream was about the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdoms of the world were the successive kingdoms of gold and silver and bronze and iron, each a little less glorious than the one before. Finally, there was a brittle kingdom at last. And this brittle kingdom was like iron mixed with clay. And a stone would smash the feet, destroying the last kingdom. The whole tottering structure of the empires of the world would come crashing down. The stone itself would grow to become a mountain, a new sort of kingdom, ruling the whole world in a new sort of way. Surely this was the moment for the stone to appear. The stone meant God's Messiah. It was he that would set up the kingdom of God by destroying the world's kingdoms and and starting something new. You might be asking, what does this have to do with the parable of the wicked farmer, uh, of the wicked farmers killing the owner's son? Jesus is interpreting his own story, and as he does it, he's quoting from two biblical passages, Psalm 118 and Daniel chapter 2. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the top stone, 
It wouldn't fit anywhere else in the building. But it will go in the place of greatest honor. And this stone, this stone will crush anything that it collides with. He, the stone, the Messiah, God's anointed, has come inaugurating the kingdom of God through which the kingdoms of the world will shiver and shake and fall to the ground. And so in this parable, we see the characters. The master of the house is God the Father. The vineyard, that's God's people, Israel. The tenants, Israel's leaders, both past and present. The fruit that he calls for, it's the fruit of repentance, obedience, and righteous living. And the two sets of servants, they're the Old Testament prophets whom God sent to his people. And then the former son, the former son is the son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus ends the parable with a question in verse 40. He asks them, he says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will those tenant, What will he do to those tenants? And the Pharisees have kind of been sucked into the story at this point. And, and in verse 41, they just kind of pipe up and they answer. They said to him, he'll put those wretches in a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. And so the answer of verse 41 points us to the new reality of Christ's kingdom. The new tenants are the new people of God, the new people in Christ's kingdom, the one who come to God through Christ. And so the parable foreshadows what's about to happen to Jesus. He's going to be rejected by the religious leaders. And just as the, 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 the farmers of the vineyard in verse 39 take the son outside of the vineyard to kill him, so, so they will send Jesus outside of the city, outside of the gate to crucify him, the son of God. Crucify him on a cross. So this parable teaches us. Teaches us about God's patience with his people. We see God's patience with his people in the the recounting of redemptive history. Over and over again, God has exemplified patience. He has sent to his people, calling them to repentance, calling them to obedience, calling them to bear the fruit of righteousness. And yet they have not. And even in this, I think we're reminded as God's people of God's patience with us. But also of God's patience with the world, with sinners. For listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, this is the desire that God, of God for our neighbors, for our co-workers who don't know the hope of Christ. This is the desire of God for our homes, for our children, for our marriages, for our families. God is patient towards you. God desires repentance. He desires a life of obedience from his people. He leads us in that direction. Not only do we see that this parable teaches us about God's patience as he has exhibited his patience over and over and over again for his people and in our lives. 
but we also learn that God will judge those who reject Christ. Verse 38 depicts the cry of those who reject Jesus the King. In their rebellion, here's what they're saying. We know better than God. We know better than the Master. We rule better than the Master. The person who rejects Jesus is saying the same thing. God has provided the way for salvation. He's provided the way through Christ, his son. And so one question that this parable prompts for all of us to ask is simply this. Am I living in rebellion against God? Is there any part of my life in which I am living in rebellion against God? If the answer to that is yes, the call is repentance. And then thirdly, we learn from this parable that our identity as God's people is tied up with mission and vocation. Our identity as God's people is tied up with mission and vocation. For Israel, they were God's people. And as God's people, they were called to represent God to the nations. This goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, right? I will bless the nations through you, Abraham. Through your offspring, the nations will be blessed. This is something that God has established from the beginning in his covenant with Abraham. Their vocation was to be a blessing to the nations. Their vocation, even going back to Adam and Eve in the garden, was to image God to the world, to rightly reflect God into the world and to his creation. But they all rejected God's prophets. They rejected his servants. They rejected his son, the Messiah. There were two things that Jesus highlighted in the parable regarding the religious leaders. In verse 46, the first one, they feared the crowds, right? They feared the crowds. In both parables, their fear of man drove their actions rather than their fear of God. It wasn't the fear of God that was determining the things they were doing, their beliefs, their practices. It was... The fear of man. And then on the other hand, there was also this self-preservation. In regards to, to their vocation, they, they loved self more than they loved God. Does the fear of man keep us from living out our God-given mission? Sharing the message of Christ? Living in the conviction that a relationship with Christ is the only way to know God the creator? Does our love for self hinder us from living out our God-given vocation? And the answer to that question is sure, yes. Yes, it does. My love for self often trumps my living out the vocation that God has called me to. So the answer to this is repentance. We are called to image God to the world. But so often I get in the way of that. So often I I stand defiantly. So often we stand defiantly against God's authority. Even shake our fist at God perhaps and say, no, I'm going to do it my way. We learned here Jesus is calling us to repentance to produce the fruit fitting with the kingdom of God, obedience, 
repentance, righteous living. As we continue to walk through this Lenten season, let us remember that Jesus' authority, his authority is one and the same as God's authority. If we fast forward to the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, Jesus said to the disciples and to all who believe in him, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Make disciples. Be about my mission. I'm with you always. So as we close this morning, a few questions for us to consider. Have you surrendered to the authority of Jesus in your life? Are you surrendered to Jesus' authority? How are you responding to Jesus in your daily walk? Are you testing God's patience? Are you living in active rebellion against God? The call is for repentance. Or are you living out your God-called mission and vocation to a world who desperately needs to hear about and see the image of Christ the Savior? I pray the last one we can answer with yes. Yes, we are. And if we answer yes to any of the others, that we will spend time this morning repenting of our sin, trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross for our salvation. As we close and sing a song of response this morning, I want to challenge you to take a moment to reflect on how the Lord wants you to respond to his word today. And maybe this morning for you, if you don't know Jesus, don't have a relationship, you've never surrendered your life to his authority, I want to I be able to talk with you about what, that means, what it means to surrender your life to Christ's authority, what it means to trust him, to follow him, to become a disciple of Jesus. Myself, I'll be willing to speak with you after the service, at the conclusion of the service. I would love to talk with you about it. One of our elders will be standing over here on this side of the worship center by the cross and they can answer any questions that you might have about surrendering to Jesus' authority and talk with you about it. Uh, we'd love to do that. And so maybe, uh, maybe for you this morning, the Lord is directing you to, to some specific action. I want to challenge you and encourage you not to delay, but to follow what God is calling you to do. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for our Savior Jesus Christ who gives us salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for the hope of eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in each of our hearts and minds to affect change deep within us so that our faith would be evident to the world through the transformed living that you have equipped us and called us to. For it's in Christ's name we pray.